If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, in which we explore the past, present and future of science fiction. Find it at 101sf.blogspot.com and head over to YouTube to find my Bradbury 101 series, in which I look at Ray's books and movies. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Hello, and welcome to another Bradbury 100. I once received a request to cover style in the works of Ray Bradbury. And to be honest, that's something I've shied away from, because it's such a difficult topic to discuss without going all academic. But I decided it's time to bite the bullet and do a quick survey of the question of style in Ray Bradbury. So what do we mean by style? Well, a lot of literary critics will tell you that there's really no such thing. Ultimately, writing is writing. But I do find that in everyday life, people do make a distinction between, let's say, story and style, or between style and content, as if they're separate things. It's possible to read a book and say, oh, I enjoyed the story in the book, I enjoyed the plot of the book, but I didn't really care for the style of the author. I, I hear this kind of thing all the time. It's as if the plot or the story is somehow a separate thing and the author leaves fingerprints on the plot as they pass it on to you. Of course, none of this is strictly true, because everything in the book comes from the author. The words they use, the ideas they use, the way in which those ideas are presented, all of it comes from the author. It's all part of this bigger thing, the authorship of the work. However, as I said, most of us in casual conversation would make a distinction between style and content. So let's have a look at the ideas around that, and I, I promise to try not to make this too academic. In fact, let's start not with Bradbury, but with a writer who is sometimes lumped in with Bradbury. He was born in the same year. Like Ray, he first found success in pulp magazines, and later in hardcover and paperback fiction. Like Ray, he had a hardcover novel published under the Doubleday Science Fiction label in 1950. And, like Ray, he spent a large part of his life afraid of flying. I'm talking about Isaac Asimov. Now, as writers, it's difficult to think of Asimov and Bradbury as being really in any way similar. They were both famous for science fiction, and in both cases science fiction really only made up a small part of their output. Ray, of course, also wrote fantasy, horror, detective fiction, um, autobiographical fiction, nostalgic fiction, as well as um, screenplays, plays, poetry, essays, and so on. As for Asimov, the, uh, the only reason Asimov's science fiction makes up a small part of his output is because he also wrote a huge amount of non-fiction books. He wrote about science, uh, Shakespeare, the Bible, almost every subject under the sun became the subject matter for a non-fiction book by Isaac Asimov. 
who was an enormously prolific writer. In 1980, Asimov wrote an essay called The Mosaic and the Plate Glass, which is all about the question of style in writing, and he basically presents two ways in which a writer can convey ideas to a reader. He has the plate glass, which is a metaphor for the the writer whose style is so transparent that the reader isn't even aware that there is any style. Uh, this is how Asimov puts it. He says, Words and phrases are chosen not for their freshness and novelty, or for their unexpected ability to evoke a mood, but simply for their ability to describe what is going on without themselves getting in the way. Now, of course, if someone writes in that way, they are writing in a style. That transparency in itself is a style. But a writer like Asimov tries to avoid complexity in the use of language and therefore tries to convey his ideas as if you were looking at them through plain plate glass. Now, as for his other type of writer, the mosaic, you can think of this kind of writer as somebody who builds up a picture through words. So we're not seeing the world real through transparent glass, transparent language. We're seeing a representation of the world built up out of colourful fragments. Now, if you're this kind of writer, Asimov writes, you pay more attention to the language itself than to the events you are describing. You are anxious to write colourfully, to paint a picture of the setting or the background of the event. You wish to evoke a mood in the reader, which will make it possible for him to feel the events taking place more intensely than would be possible through a mere recounting. So, that's Isaac Asimov, a practising writer who spent his career being highly prolific and trying to be a plate glass, not a mosaic. Now, what did Asimov think of Bradbury? Bradbury sounds very much like one of those mosaic writers. Well, Asimov and Bradbury were friends, and Asimov even wrote a short essay about Bradbury for that esteemed journal the TV Guide. <laughs> Asimov wrote this to accompany the first airing of the TV miniseries The Martian Chronicles, which I spoke about in the last episode of this podcast. In that essay, Asimov talks about Bradbury's early career and how Bradbury's science fiction stories didn't quite fit in to the dominant mode of 1940s science fiction. For instance, Bradbury found it very difficult to get published in Astounding Science Fiction, the leading science fiction magazine of that time. And Asimov says this particular problem was because all the other science fiction writers who were trying to satisfy John W. Campbell, the editor of Astounding, those other science fiction writers were sometimes quite opaque. Uh, this is what Asimov says, given to coldly reasoning their way from point to point, and rarely allowing emotions to overtake their thin-lipped, narrow-eyed, lofty-browed space pilots, engineers or scientists. So that's what Bradbury was up against. And in contrast to this, Asimov says Bradbury, and I quote, created moods with few words. He wasn't ashamed to tug at the heartstrings, and there was a semi-poetic nostalgia to most of those stories. He created his own version of Mars straight out of the 19th century, totally ignoring the findings of the 20th century. So Asimov is drawing attention to mood, to emotion, to poetry or semi-poetic writing 
and to nostalgia as well. And these are some of the notions that come up again and again when people talk about Bradbury's writing. So if that is the nature of Bradbury's writing, that it works through moods, emotions, poetry, then how does this happen? How does Bradbury achieve this? The science fiction writer and critic James E. Gunn wrote that Bradbury deals with experience at two removes in much of his fiction. Gunn writes, the reader gets not an attempt to recreate reality, nor even an image of reality, but the experience of symbols. And Gunn goes on to explain what he means by this. He says, reality is not what a fantasy writer is about, but rather the symbols that haunt men's dreams and the words that in themselves have magic. So whatever Bradbury is doing, he is using words symbolically rather than as transparent plate glass. We're talking about metaphors, of course. Those symbols are metaphors. Bradbury's words somehow have an impact upon us beyond the literal meaning of the words. Maybe all this is as clear as mud, so maybe we should look at some of those words. One critic who did exactly that is Sarah Warner J. Powell, who wrote an essay called Style is the Man, Imagery in Bradbury's Fiction. And what Sarah Warner did was examine three of Ray's classic works, S is for Space, The Martian Chronicles, and I Sing the Body Electric. And she went through them all, extracting all of the similes and metaphors, in other words, all of the non-literal language that Bradbury was using. And then she examined these words to see how they were used and the impact they had on the reader. It's almost a scientific study of this non-scientific thing. But if I pick out some of the phrases that Sarah Warner mentions, these may sound typically Bradbury to you. How can you describe colonists on another planet? Well, Bradbury does it like this. They would come like a scatter of jackstones on the marble flats beside the canals. Or... Small children, small seeds to be blown in all the Martian climes. And what about computers? Well, Bradbury describes computers like this. A school of computers that chatter in a maniac chorus. A cloud of paper confetti from one Titan machine, holes punched out to perhaps record his passing, fell upon him in a whispered snow. What about rockets? Well, in Bradbury's words, they can be flowers of heat and colour. Or they can be like drums beating in the night. Or, the rockets came like locusts, swarming and settling in blooms of rosy smoke. Now immediately we begin isolating short phrases from Bradbury. We know this is Bradbury. No other writer really does this, especially in a science fiction context. So what Bradbury is doing in most of these examples is using metaphor or simile. He's not just saying, there is a rocket. He's using language to convey the feeling of a rocket. The rockets came like drums beating in the night. Well, rockets are nothing like drums. Except by linking the two, Bradbury is able to create, in this case, a sound image in your mind. When he says the rockets come like locusts, he's not really saying they're like locusts, but it creates the mental image of a swarm. So these are metaphors, these are non-literal ways of describing things, and Bradbury's work is full of them. Sarah Warner Pell, in her conclusion, says, 
the adroit use of images seems to show that the author, with consummate skill and originality, makes his science fiction reach far beyond the banal pedestrian pulp, beyond the stereotype blast-em-up future fiction. Bradbury brought respectability to science fiction. Beyond this, his fertile imagination, as evidenced in his use of simile and metaphor, creates vivid images. Now, although these images, these metaphors, leap out at us when we're reading Bradbury, particularly early Bradbury, by which I mean stories written in the 40s, the 50s, the early 60s, that, in fact, is not the only trick that Bradbury has. It's not the only style device that he uses. William Tuponce and Jonathan Eller wrote a book called Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction. Uh, Jonathan Eller was a guest on this podcast a number of episodes ago, so you might want to go back and uh, listen to what he has to say. Anyway, Eller and Tuponce, in their book The Life of Fiction, they do uh, a couple of things. They provide a detailed history of how most of Bradbury's major works were written, how they were constructed, and they examine Bradbury's themes. And every now and again, they talk about questions of style, and they make a very good observation on this. They say that Bradbury actually writes in two modes. We can think of one of these modes as, well, they compare it to Hemingway, but it's essentially Isaac Asimov's plate glass. It's clear language. And the other mode is the poetic mode, just like in Asimov's mosaic. As an example of the Hemingway style in Bradbury, Eller and Tuponce use a short passage from the story The Long Years, part of the Martian Chronicles. This is the passage. Whenever the wind came through the sky, he and his small family would sit in the stone hut and warm their hands over a wood fire. The wind would stir the canal waters and almost blow the stars out of the sky. But Mr Hathaway would sit contented and talk to his wife, and his wife would reply and he would speak to his two daughters and his son about the old days on earth. And they would all answer neatly. Now, there's one metaphor in that passage, that bit about almost blow the stars out of the sky. But apart from that one element, this narration of the story is plain, clear language. Ellerin Tuponce write, As in Hemingway, there is a mistrust of abstractions. The voice of the chronicler tries to eschew metaphor for a kind of naive truth-telling economy and understatement. And if you look at Bradbury's works, you will find frequently there are passages of this clarity, this simple style. But elsewhere, in the same work, you will, of course, find the poetry. And Ella and Tuponce use a short passage from a bridge section of the Martian Chronicles to illustrate this. The rocket set the bony meadows afire, turned rock to lava, turned wood to charcoal, transmitted water to steam, made sand and silica into green glass, which lay like shattered mirrors reflecting the invasion all about. Incidentally, that sentence precedes the one I mentioned earlier, the rockets came like drums beating in the night. What Ella and Tupont say of this is that, of course, it's full of metaphor, and they compare it to Thomas Wolfe. They say, as in some passages of Thomas Wolfe, the voice is lyrically rhapsodic. So we actually, in Bradbury, have a writer who is doing two things and kind of weaving the two together. The clarity of the plate glass and the poetry of the colourful mosaic. 
and there is one very interesting way that Bradbury can sometimes switch instantly from one mode to the other. What he often will do is this. He will carry you along in a story, using the Hemingway style, the clear language, the plate glass, and then he will bring you to something that stops the action, something that we need to observe and take in. A tableau, a static scene. And the classic example for me is from the short story A Sound of Thunder, when we're introduced to the dinosaur, the T-Rex. Listen to this description. It came on great oiled, resilient, striding legs. It towered thirty feet above half of the trees, a great evil god, folding its delicate watchmaker's claws close to its oily reptilian chest. Each lower leg was a piston. A thousand pounds of white bones sunk in thick ropes of muscle, sheathed over in a gleam of pebbled skin, like the mail of a terrible warrior. Each thigh was a ton of meat, ivory and steel mesh, and from the great breathing cage of the upper body those two delicate arms dangled out front, arms with hands which might pick up and examine men like toys, while a snake neck coiled. What an amazing description of a dinosaur. Other writers might just have said it was a giant reptile with leathery skin, and that would be it. But there are so many images thrown in, reference to the legs, not just any legs, oiled, resilient, striding legs. Uh, in talking about how tall the dinosaur is, he's a great evil god, and its small hands, its delicate watchmaker's claws. It's kind of a, uh, a patchwork way of describing the dinosaur. And in his book, simply titled Ray Bradbury, Wayne Al Johnson says the creature is assembled like a jigsaw puzzle out of strikingly juxtaposed images. God, watchmaker, warrior, snake, all at the same time. Depictions of movement, striding, towering, folding, breathing, dangling, keep the creature alive every step of the way. Now that passage from A Sound of Thunder is very poetic. It's kind of a prose poem, and... Bradbury himself compared this kind of thing that he did to ponce. A ponce is a thought expressed in poetic terms. It can just be a simple one-liner, or it could be a, a long descriptive passage. And for Bradbury, these prose poems often involve reflecting on an object or an image or a scene. So what Bradbury delights in doing is carrying us along using the well, the plate glass style, the Hemingway style, and then taking us to a tableau, into a ponce, where he builds a jigsaw, a colourful mosaic. Now, a lot of critics have referred to the poetry of Bradbury's prose. William F. Nolan called Bradbury the poet of the pulps, because, well, he began his career in the pulp magazines, and because he's poetic. Strangely, though, Bradbury did also write poetry, but it never really had much appeal for critics or, or even for readers. Although there are a number of volumes of Bradbury's poems, none of them has sold anywhere near as well as his novels or his short stories. But clearly poetry was very important to Bradbury. In an essay called How to Keep and Feed a Muse, Bradbury urges us to read poetry every day of your life. Poetry is good because it flexes muscles you don't use often enough. 
He goes on to say, poetry expands the senses and keeps them in prime condition. It keeps you aware of your nose, your eye, your ear, your tongue, your hand. And above all, poetry is compacted metaphor or simile. Such metaphors like Japanese paper flowers may expand outward into gigantic shapes. Bradbury then goes on to recommend that we all read poetry. He says, ideas lie everywhere through the poetry books, yet how rarely have I heard a short story teacher recommending them for browsing? And then later in the same essay, he writes, what poetry? Any poetry that makes your hair stand up along your arms. Don't force yourself too hard. Take it easy. Over the years, you may catch up to, move even with, and pass T.S. Eliot on your way to other pastures. You say you don't understand Dylan Thomas. Yes, but your ganglion does. So, Bradbury and style. It's poetry in prose form. As I said at the beginning, this is dangerously academic territory. What I find is that I can approach the question of style and poetry in the prose with Bradbury or from the outside. If I approach it with Ray, I try to find out what it is that he thinks he's doing when he writes. And for this, I'd recommend, well, either checking out interviews with Bradbury or look in his book Zen in the Art of Writing. Or you can approach this subject from the critic's side, in which case there comes the problem of what level of difficulty do you want in the analysis. There are some critical books which discuss Bradbury's poetry and prose in a very accessible way, but there are many others which are very academic, and you may find yourself getting bogged down in academic language. Anyway, from whichever direction you approach Bradbury's style, the main thing is to have fun and enjoy it. That's it for now. Thanks once again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Bradbury 100. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe using your podcast app. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and all good podcast places. And please also check out my YouTube series, Bradbury 101, and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these, head to bradburymedia.co.uk.